1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with David J. Stump. Professor of Philosophy at the University of San Francisco. His new book, Conceptual Change and the Philosophy of Science Alternative Interpretations of the A Priori, is just out from Routledge. Ever since Kant argued that there was a category of truths, the synthetic a priori, that grounded the possibility of empirical knowledge, philosophers have debated the concept of a priori knowledge in science. Science is based on empirical knowledge based in sense experience, but are there also kinds of scientific knowledge that are not empirical? In particular, are mathematical claims in science of this sort? Stump argues that there is an important sense of a priori knowledge in science, but that it is pragmatic and dynamic. On his view, the a priori in science is better understood as the constitutive elements of science, the truths that must be presupposed for empirical inquiry to take place, but without implying that these truths are universal and fixed, as Kant and others have held. Stump contrasts his view with those of Poincaré, Carnap, Quine, Friedman, and other writers, and argues that the functional a priori can account for the role of mathematics and science, as well as the rationality of science through revolutionary conceptual change. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, David Stump. Are you there? Yes. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, well, I'm I'm very happy to be talking about your new book, Conceptual Change and the Philosophy of Science. Um, you give a very, very nice tour of you know all the various positions on uh, on the nature of the a priori in science. Um, starting obviously with the, with the case of Kant, who who kind of raised the problem to begin with. Um, and then going through what you consider two different traditions of responses—the um, logical positive, positivist one—and then a, a tradition that you you call the sort of pragmatist um, or functional uh, tradition. Um, so before we get into the details of the book, it's uh, I like to find out a little bit about uh, you as as a philosopher, and then how you came to write about this particular topic.
0: Okay. I, um, as an undergraduate w- at Berkeley was um, very fascinated by worldviews and uh, the idea that, that we have uh, changing conceptions of reality through history and cross culturally as well. And of course these raise the issue of relativism very um immediately um, this was kind of the backdrop generally of uh, of my interest in in conceptual change in science and and uh, related topics and I had very pluralistic training in philosophy I went to northwestern and for graduate school and it was at uh, just at a time when it was developing a philosophy of science program and, and still had a strong continental program. So um, I got a, a wide range of, of uh, perspectives and um, methodologies, uh, studied history of philosophy quite seriously and, and things like that. So when I came to choose a dissertation topic, rather than deal with things on a kind of broad epistemological way um, dealing with relativism or something, I decided to go into philosophy of science and look at Henri Poincaré's conventionalism about space-time and that was a very concrete and specific example of a way that there might be um, a worldview or a, a Uh, convention, something that we choose that um, has an effect on the way reality is considered. And um, I studied his philosophy uh, of space-time conventionalism in um, my dissertation, and I've been working on Poincaré ever since, and of course he plays a big role in the book, but for this book, I wanted to expand uh, the the topic back to a wider issue, and um, basically take on the the uh, the general idea of conceptual change in science through the the various um, alternative theories of the a priori. That is, the relativist relative a priori or historical a priori, historical epistemology, uh, pragmatist theory of the a priori, all of the functionalist theory, all these uh, names are uh, a family of, of theories that say... That things that Kant took to be fixed and universal um, turned out to change over time, and that is what explains then conceptual change in science.
1: So, I mean, one of the ways that you well, you begin the book um, with a kind of a brief tour of of non Euclidean geometry, right? right? With the uh, the um, I guess the rejection of the parallel postulate, among other things. Um can you say a bit about you know why that you know the changes in geometries uh, or the possibility of non-euclidean geometries um was such a you know sort of foundation shaking um uh, aspect of science you know as it entered say the post-newtonian um era uh, you know, because Kant, of course, had begun uh, explaining, you know, positing the synthetic a priori in response to certain skeptical doubts that, you know, from, from Hume. Um, and there was no reason to really question the that sort, I guess, suppose, of a priori uh, before the very foundations that he thought were fixed turned out like not to be fixed. Um, so, can you give us a little bit of the background that you kind of pack into that one that one chapter, but to kind of lay the groundwork for the for Poincaré and the other figures who follow?
0: Okay. Um, well, non-Euclidean geometries were a, a major uh, revolution, not so much for mathematicians, perhaps, but for philosophers, and that's basically because. Kant put such an emphasis on um, space and geometry and time and arithmetic, respectively, um, in his theory of how we experience reality and how we have knowledge. Basically, um, geometry is the foundation of what he calls our external um, sens- sensuous intuition that is our our intuition of our experience of things around us are all in space um, necessarily and he thought must be in Euclidean space um, the traditional geometry um, basically that everyone learns in high school and you know where there's one parallel going through a point off a given line. Um, Every line has one parallel uh, through a given point. Um, And the whole reason he invented the theory of of synthetic a priori is to explain what he took to be the necessity of Euclidean geometry. And... um, and you have a parallel story in arithmetic um, as founding our intuition about time, things happening in sequence, one after the other. So when mathematicians discovered um, alternatives to Euclidean geometry, um no one really noticed actually <laughs> until um Helmholtz very pointedly and Riemann also but but Helmholtz especially um wrote two articles where he said listen uh Kant says you can't represent anything but Euclidean geometry and it represent in German is Vorstellung and um and he said Nonsense. We can uh, represent uh, other geometries, and gives a, a little argument uh, to make that uh, case. And this was in two articles. I say, as I say, in eighteen sixty eight and eighteen seventy, I believe, and um, that's when philosophers suddenly sat up and took notice um, that wait a minute, this is a big challenge to Kant's theory because. Um, Space and time and geometry and arithmetic are um, foundations to how uh, we experience the world and and know things in the world. And if there are alternatives, um, this seems to say that Kant was wrong. Um, there's... And, you know, just the the issue of of the conception of space, of course, is a big issue in itself. um, uh, Different theories, Newton's absolute theory of space and and Leibniz's relational theory of space. And Poincaré comes down on Leibniz's side on that one. Um, But so there's already uh, it's already a big topic within philosophy of science, and it was made a big topic in general in philosophy because of the effect it had on Kant. Now of course there are um, defenses of Kant Um, basically uh, the most interesting one uh, is that um, not only is Kant consistent with the existence of non-Euclidean geometries but he predicts them because He says that um, arithmetic arithmetic and geometry are synthetic. That is to say, um, they're not just true by virtue of logical uh, manipulation of symbols, but rather substantially they say something about the world. And um, if non-Euclidean geometries were inconsistent, then um and there was only the only logical possible geometry was euclidean um then in that case geometry would be analytic and that doesn't isn't what kant says so the possibility of of other geometries as logical possibilities actually is um consistent with kant so that's what some neo-kantians said um but other neo-kantians just at the bullet and said, um, all right, we'll give up the idea of the sensuous intuitions of space and time, and we'll keep the categories of the understanding. Um, Other um, a priori synthetic uh, uh, things like that every event has a cause and and, uh, that substance exists through time and, and things like that um, so they just bit the bullet and, and said we'll give up on that we'll accept it but, but you see this is a huge impact uh, Kant was very influential and, and basically non-Euclidean geometries the existence of non-Euclidean geometries had a huge impact on the field because of, of um, the position of Kant and how it seemed to refute him and they had to respond in some way um Of course, the people I'm looking at respond by saying, um these things that were considered to be a priori by Kant turn out to be things that can change through time um and um in different uh scientific systems, different scientific theories
1: mm-hmm. yeah, one, so one of the questions that I had been thinking was you know why it took. I think philosophers, you know, decades to kind of accept uh, what the mathematicians had accepted, you know, in the, in the 1870s, it, it took a while for philosoph- philosophers to come around. And I suppose part of, the, part of that was just Kant had a certain stature in philosophy that no doubt he did not have in, in mathematics.
0: That's right. And also, you know, there's a funny thing about revolutions in mathematics. It's the only field where they keep all the old theories. Um, in, in physical science, in astronomy, for example, you have Ptolemaic theory of, of the planets where the Earth is in the center of the universe. Um, and when you get Copernicus and the putting the sun in the center of the solar system with the earth revolving around the sun instead of the sun revolving around the earth you suddenly uh, have to throw away 10,000 years worth of work in effect um and um start all over again with uh, your charts and things like that and Um, in chemistry uh, famously you know you have this phlogiston theory before the discovery of oxygen and um, Lavoisier uh, showing how to um, how to make a theory uh, based on oxygen and saying that phlogiston doesn't exist at all and you know and then The work, the empirical work that went into uh, theories of of Phlogiston kind of gets thrown away also. Sometimes this is called Kuhn loss uh, after Thomas Kuhn, um, revolutionary changes. But in math, um, and it's the only field like this, I think, you never throw anything away. Everything is always maintained. So just because you discover new geometries, you just they mathematicians just say oh well there are more geometries euclidean geometry is the the geometry of flat surfaces and uh, and non euclidean geometries either are of negatively curved surfaces in the surfaces in the case of olaidovichsky or or hyperbolic geometry or positively curved surfaces in the case of riemannian or um spherical geometry or elliptical sometimes also it's called mm-hmm. depending on little details but but anyway the the point is that they could mathematicians could just see this as oh another geometry great you know more tools to work with um whereas for philosophers it really seemed like they were losing something um namely Kant's theory of of space and time
1: yeah um, so, so Poincaré, I think, is you mentioned him before. I mean, he's a major figure here, um, and he has sort of pride of place in your um, in your, histor- your account of historical figures who have dealt with um, the a priori. I mean, there's a number we won't get through all of them, but um, in particular, he had a, a very very influential view of uh, conventionalism. Uh, but as you point out, well, you know, I mean, a lot of people have accused him of being inconsistent or, you know, right. somehow saying one thing on one day and a different thing on another day. Um, and you, you're, on your view, he had actually a, a very a mixed account of the a priori and that um, his own, um, uh, his view of conventionalism itself had different parts to it um one that had to deal with uh metric geometry and another type of of conventionalism um for for principles so could you could you say a word about uh poincare and 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 how he kind of set things up in this kind of post kantian
0: um era well first of all he maintains something like a kantian a priori although it's not Exactly the same because it's not connected to time in, in his view. We don't have an intuition of time. But he does have a, the idea that, that the, the, print, the fundamental principles of arithmetic are synthetic a priori in, the, in an old-fashioned sense. And um, he thinks the situation is quite different for geometry. He thinks geometry is conventional. That is the in specifically the metric of geometry is conventional. Whether you take space to be flat or curved um, is is a matter of convention, um, just like. He says, um, in a very misleading metaphor, perhaps um, different temperature scales you have Fahrenheit and centigrade, and you know you can use one or the other, and it doesn't matter and He says uh, the situation is something like that with geometries. You can use Euclidean geometry that's simpler, so he thinks that's the one that people will use, or you could use non Euclidean geometry and still do physics, so that's the conventionality of." space, now and of geometry. Now, he has another way he talks about conventions, which is the conventions of principles, and that's actually closer to what I'm dealing with in the book, with the alternative theories of the a priori, because what those are is something like fundamental presuppositions, or fundamental um, conceptions that are necessary to get science going, um, but um, aren't at least if they are empirical at all, um, and they are and they are synthetic. That is, they do tell you about the real world. But if they are empirical, it's only in a in a kind of um, a strange way or a, a kind of way that. It takes a lot of work. Um, it's not like going out in the forest and finding a new species of frog where you just, oh, I found something and I'm observing it now, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these fundamental presuppositions are um, so basic and uh, so fundamental that that we can't um, simply discover them like that. We have to have them in place before we... Um, Um, can do our science and that's things like Newton's theories of uh, Newton's laws of motion for example um, which I talk about in the book also um, have been considered um, these kind of fundamental principles you need these fundamental principles before you can do Newtonian physics um, before you can um, um, do anything really in the sciences and that, um, is what Poincaré is talking about the kind of thing he's talking about with, with conventionality of principles that is there are alternative principles that we could um, use in some cases he thinks these are pretty limited actually um, which is interesting and, and um, that is there's a small number of them um, because some things turn out to be just empirical um and he he thinks that uh of course the conventionality of space space is just one thing, conventionality of geometry or space. Um so that's pretty limited too. So so Poincaré has a fairly conservative viewpoint on this. Um and as i say he also maintains the synthetic a priori for arithmetic so so again you know he has a uh, a rather uh limited and and conservative view um
1: okay so um yes. uh i mean i guess in the in the other direction i mean you you in, in the beginning and then later on of course you know the 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 figure of quine comes up Right. You know, periodically, and he, of course, famously says, "Well, there is no a priori; it's just a matter of what's more entrenched or not." There's a core; core stuff is entrenched, peripheral stuff is not, and and um, and that's the end of the story. Um, and a lot of you know other sort of non-Kantian or neo-Kantian uh, figures in between. Uh, from the logical positivists, um, you know, through to Friedman, and you also discuss hacking. Um, the The differences among these positions is really one of determining what exact, how do we account for this special status? Um, you know, Quine does it in terms of, you know, just entrenchment. Um, you disagree with that. Um, uh, so I, I suppose... Uh, maybe from a historical perspective, um, you know, after Poincaré, the the major approach was the g- generally the logical positivist tradition, right? Um, maybe you can say something about how they conceived of the status of these um, a priori truths.
0: Yeah, the the things that had been considered a priori by Kant were considered by the logical positivists to fall into two possibilities: either they were merely analytic, um, and that is, they uh, are are just um, matters of definition and and um, what follows logically, um, or they are synthetic and therefore are and empirical, that is, things to be known um, through this sensation or through experiment or something like that. So in other words, if you look at the, the possibilities, uh, uh, Kant said some things are analytic, some things are synthetic, some things are um, a priori, some things are empirical and he had a special category for things that are both synthetic and a priori and the logical positivist just said well that category is empty um it's that's the empiricist position um and which goes back to hume of course um hume said there's either relations of ideas which is like the analytic um ideas or there are these substantial um uh, empirical truths uh, or falsehoods, um, and um, so they they narrowed it down. They got rid of the synthetic a priori, um, and and that, like I say, is the the empiricist, the pure empiricist kind of view. Quine also has a purely empirical view by saying that everything is ultimately empirical in in some sense or other. Um, he waffles a little bit on logic and mathematics in the end of his life, but that's for now, I mean I'm I'm following Michael Friedman, I'm using quine as the as the alternative to um someone who as someone who does not believe in a synthetic a or an a priori at all, really. Um
1: so um so I guess uh I mean Quine would I would I would put him I mean your major figures for the alternative to the logical positive view positivist view um which you characterize variously as a pragmatic tradition with uh the American pragmatists, some of them um uh or the functional a priori. I wasn't sure if those were the same thing. Um, but in the alternative, what you call an alternative tradition, um, your major figures are, are Ernst Cassiera, mm-hmm. um if I've said that correctly, uh, C.I. Yeah. Lewis, and and Arthur Papp. And, and you mm-hmm. note that Arthur, you know, and not, I don't, you know, Quine was not kind of a prominent person in that group, as far as I could see. Wow. And you see your your own view as being a, a sort of um within the the papian uh view i suppose or maybe a development of of arthur pap's view so um can you can you explain what characterizes that uh, that group of people that you that you consider as defending various versions of the of the pragmatic a priori
0: well starting with kasira who i Say the least about, but but um, he there's a lot to say about him, really. But apparently, he has a view that you know that, that things that Kant thought were a priori, some fundamental principles, can change in in different periods as science develops. Um, but at the same time, he thought we should look for even deeper and more basic principles that remain constant through all time. So he has a a halfway step, as it were. That is you, you um you start out uh noticing um that that there are um um Things that Kant had taken to be fixed and universal that in fact have changed, like the non-Euclidean geometry case. But the task then, according to Kassira, is to look for even deeper principles that are in fact universal and are in fact fixed, or um, would ideally be fixed. Now, that's a neat, as I say, a well, that's how it should be described, I suppose, as a neo-Kantian. Um, yeah. He's usually labeled a neo-Kantian. Um, the pragmatists go further and say, well, there are um, these um, things that have changed um, that Kant thought were universal and fixed, um, and we shouldn't be looking for a deeper story. Um, everything is up for grabs as a possible um, Uh, everything is fallible so um, everything uh, is up for grabs as a possible uh, thing that could change with further developments in science and you know this is famously um, posited by C.I. Lewis he has an article called The Pragmatic Theory of the a priori and then he develops that in his book Book Mind and World Order. Um, but in a sense, he's got a very narrow view in that it turns out he really only has one example, which is Einstein's um, argument for the conventionality of simultaneity. And that turns out to be a rather conser- con- con- controversial um, example. On top of it, on top of there only being one, um, so I'm a little concerned about his view. Arthur Pap goes much further and says, really, anything um, in the right context could be to considered uh, a constitutive element that is a an a priori element um, of uh, a science. And things change, change their roles. Sometimes they're constitutive and sometimes they're um, empirical um, in different contexts, in different uh, theories. And um, so that's the direction that I see as being correct. Um, the only place I would say I disagree with Pap is that he tends to put things in linguistic form. He was very much an analytic philosopher. And um, and likes to think of things in terms of definitions in terms of uh, um, meaning of terms and things like that. I'm much more in the camp of thinking of science in terms of a practice and the practice and including of more than just language, um, that is uh, physical practices and machinery and all kinds of things should be included in our analysis of science, I think. So, so that's where I go further than than pap um of course um people like uh Friedman and um Thomas Kuhn and uh Ian hacking have similar views as well although they they uh, couch them mostly in different terms although Friedman's pretty close to that um so that's that's the um... kind of tradition uh... that i'm uh... uh trying to highlight i think um... Kassira and um... lewis i mean we're talking about people writing in the twenty in the teens and twenties um, and then Pap in the forties and fifties do constitute a a different track um, for philosophy of science uh, than what was presented by the logical positivists, or if you want to call them logical empiricists, um, I'm taking the two names as being synonymous. Um, Some some people didn't like logical positivists, and some people and prefer logical empiricists, but I'm taking them to mean the same thing. So um, so I, I see this as an, as an alternative to the logical positivists um, because they take the a priori more seriously and don't try to um, do that pure uh, empirical reduction of the synthetic offer, all right.
1: So, so Quine, I mean, um, his—you—you you criticize his view as yeah. it's saying his distinction between core and periphery is really not, not sufficient, uh, as far as I understand it, to to draw the status distinction. Well, uh, let's, that let's, that 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 you want, or at least that was that was the impression I
0: got. Could you, okay, could you explain your? The best way to bring this is probably with an example. Mm-hmm. One of the prime examples of what um, Michael Friedman and others, including me, have thought of as a constitutive um, principle or a relative a priori, if you will, is something like the calculus in Newtonian physics. You have to do. You have to have the calculus as a tool in order to do Newtonian physics. If you're going to calculate the the, core, the planets as they orbit around the sun, and and uh, or you're going to do pretty much anything, you need calculus. Um, and that's what we mean by a necessary precondition in Kantian language or a constitutive element of the Newtonian uh, theory. Um, calculus is, is something you have to have in place as a tool before you can do anything. Now, Quine would say in his theory, that, well, oh, sure, I can explain this. He's got a purely empirical theory. Um, Calculus is entrenched. That is, it's um, in the center of the web of belief and uh, something we're going to be less likely to to change um, than something out on the periphery. And what does he mean by entrenchment? Well, there's two things he says about entrenchment. One is that it's uncontroversial; everyone accepts it, and two that it's been around a long time. Calculus, to take that as our prime example, does not fit either of those requirements of entrenchment. When Newton um, was using it in the Principia, he had just invented it. He, along with Leibniz, of course, but. But he, it was brand new, and it was not uncontroversial. It wasn't uncontroversial until much later when people like Cauchy and Weierstrass and people like that put it on a sound logical footing, and um, you get what what's called the rigorization of the calculus. You know, a century later, centuries later. Um, So, is not entrenched. The calculus is not entrenched, according to Quine's own criteria, and that's uh, just as an example of why I think something like entrenchment doesn't capture um, the um, the right notion for trying to understand what's going on in in the sciences. <laughs> And I should give a footnote here to Michael Friedman because he's developed this argument.
1: Okay. Well, I couldn't couldn't Quine say, I mean, this just occurred to me. Yeah. Uh, well, it wasn't entrenched when it was introduced. Uh, you know, for all we knew, the calculus maybe might not have worked. You know, maybe it looked like a good device and it turned out a few years later, like, oh, wait a minute, this is not, you know, the best way to go. Um and then it became entrenched i mean that that seems to be consistent with his view to say that things needn 't you know it, 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 he would it would seem that if you want to have a core periphery distinction be sufficient that you could easily say well, when something first is introduced, obviously it 's not going to be core, but things can become core
0: well that 's very interesting i mean the the <laughs> what I would say is that it depends on if you want to accept I mean the the view you're expressing is a retrospective view from our current standpoint um, calculus is not um, controversial and it's been around a long time Mm -hmm. but um, if you're requiring as an understanding of the development of science what was going on at the time, rather than retrospectively, then Quine can't, um, Quine can't, can't do that. account won't do that. So it depends on what your historiography requirements are in effect yeah we need something that can work in real time uh to understand what science is doing or do or is it all right to have kind of a retroactive um reconstruction um and I would hold out for uh something that that works in real time that is that works historically um within the the framework um that um was given at the time. Now, this gets to be a very complex story. In fact, one of the things I have a footnote uh, for in the book is that, you know, there's a controversy over whether Newton himself actually used the calculus in his own physics so is it really necessary? <laughs> um, actually the, the best, uh, work by someone I can't remember right now. Um, Italian guy, um, seems to say that he did in fact use calculus and in, get, in, in, yeah, uh-huh. but, but there is controversy about that. And, and it shows, you know, that, I mean, when you really get into the history, it's, it's quite a, a, a rich thing and not something you can, um, Philosophers tend to like reconstructions and uh, speculations right. of, of messy history.
1: <laughs> well, let me let me just. Um, uh, I, I guess the question is how, how do you get a real time conception, as you put it, of the a priori um, that really gets you the the status that yeah. uh, that that we associate with the a priori. I mean, I understand you want to get rid of the, the, the language, you know, a priori. Let's just call them constituent, constitutive elements of science. And that's, that's fine. You know, so that's all I mean by a priori is constitutive right. elements. But even to have a constitutive element, um, that seems to be much, much stronger than, well, I'm taking this, as a presupposition now, and uh, that seems fine, but, you know, whenever you set up an experiment or anything, there's all kinds of things that are presupposed, and it would seem that for something to count not merely as presupposed, but as a priori or constitutive, there has to be something more than that. And... The real time issue is well. In real time, you may not. It's it's probably really difficult to know. You know which of things those things are going to be constitutive, which you know, as opposed yeah. to merely, you know, presupposed and taken for granted.
0: Well, you look at. You, I mean, what what you have to do is look at scientific practice, and a lot of things you will find, you know, I mean, you can dig out what the presuppositions are. Um, And the thing I would say about what makes something constitutive, I mean, it is largely just, you know, a necessary precondition for so whatever that, you know, phrase uh, captures. Um, So in that sense, it is just uh, a condition, a hypothetical, but there there are little hints that there's something stronger going on. Um, one is that, that, like I say, with the, the example of the calculus, you can't do the physics at all without that presupposition. It's not quite like you're just, oh, I'll assume this, you know, and <laughs> I mean, it's like really essential science. Another thing I would say, and this comes up, In my um the first example I give in the book, which is of a someone um the petri dish. A a petri dish with a growth in it, and, and saying, Oh, this petri dish uh is contaminated. And that example um is not as strong as as the um calculus example, I think. It is more like just a a precondition or entrenchment or something that why spontaneous generation is not considered as a live possibility but where I, I say that it becomes something a little stronger is that the scientist is actually using the non-existence of spontaneous generation as a criterion that is having a growth in the In the supposedly in the sealed uh, uh, petri dish is something that is a criterion of contamination. That is, it means contamination, and that's something a little bit stronger merely than presupposing. That is, your the use of that presupposition is has got a a real epistemological bite to it. It's 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 criterion. For, for when something is sterile or not. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean, that's what I would say is the something more than just um, just a presupposition. Although you know, like I say, I mean, I, I think I do mean by constitutive um, presuppositions. Um, are all presuppositions constitutive? Um, well, if they're central enough to the science, I'd Kind of want to say yes actually um, but but you know like a like a a pragmatist um, I don't think there are uh, fixed categories that are black and white on any of these things mm-hmm. I think there's always a continuum so you know there are going to be stronger examples of constitutive elements and weaker examples of constitutive elements um, things that are Presuppositions in a in a way that uh, is really necessary for the science, and presuppositions which are are weaker um, uh, requirements for the science,
1: right? Or necessary
0: for that experiment that day, right? Yeah, right. I mean, it's not really the science, and that's that's fine because, as Pat points out, you know, things are constitutive in a context. That is, you know, they may be in perfectly empirical in some context and perfectly not empirical, perfectly constitutive in another context. So,
1: I mean, okay. this kind of gets us to uh, Michael Friedman's view, neo-Kantian view and your, your criticism um, of him because he gives a sort of a special role to philosophy Right. Uh, in terms of providing a kind of continuous rational foundation for science even through you know kuhnian revolutions right um and uh you argue that there is no such special role for philosophy and that's actually a kind of a kuhnian point too right right yeah. Um, can you can you say something about that that criticism there
0: in one sense of the very multifaceted term I'm a naturalist um, that is in terms of uh, science and philosophy being continuous I don't want to make a sharp distinction between um, the two fields the way Michael Friedman seems to be committed to um, and I mean but but basically what surprises me a little with Friedman on this view is he seems to take um, Kuhn's problematic very seriously and think that he needs to answer the question of what maintains continuity um, since Kuhn has an argument that there is no continuity over across revolutions that is across changes in paradigm which is what a revolution is by definition Um, because of incommensurability between two paradigms, um, there, there's no continuity, even in things that look continuous, like going from Newton to Einstein. Um, Quine has an argument. Um, Kuhn, excuse me, has an argument that, um, that um, they're not continuous because they're talking about the same word in different ways, so they, there's a meaning change going on with, with things like mass and and things like that. But anyway, um, Friedman takes this very seriously, but I'm a little surprised by that just simply because there's been a lot of discussion of Kuhn's work, and I would have thought by the time Friedman was writing the book, um, there were a lot of answers to Kuhn. I think my answer, and I'm following people like Larry Loudon and Dudley Shapir and others who tried to um, argue in a non-foundationalist way against Kuhn, Um, I think there's enough continuity within science itself um, without adding a layer of philosophy to make the continuity. Uh, Just another way of saying I don't accept uh, Kuhn's incommensurability thesis. Um, (laughs) But but part of what what's going on there is, you know, I, I studied Poincaré, and and one of the first things I learned in studying uh, Poincaré was that there are these figures who are exactly in between um, the two, the big paradigms. I mean, then he's not completely Newtonian, um, and he's not completely Einsteinian or relativity theory either. Um, and neither is Lorenz and others uh, in there, and and so there's there's a lot more continuity I think in science itself than than Kuhn is uh, Kuhn's picture allows for, um, and because of that I think um, Friedman's response is just not necessary. He's answering a, answering a question that. It doesn't need to be answered, um, in effect.
1: Okay. So how about, like, metaphysical principles? I mean, a lot of yeah. philosophers will maintain um, uh, that, you know, there's a sort of metaphysical foundations. I mean, that's a very popular topic these days is, you know, the metaphysical foundations of physics, um, uh where where do, are those on your view constitutive principles you know like mathematical principles and they're just in the mix somehow
0: I think they would be probably constitutive in this if they're necessary preconditions i mean necessary presuppositions to to um to do the science um what I would say is if you've got something that looks like it's universal and and you know you can't imagine any alternative um, uh, that just means that uh, that you've got a principle that may change but hasn't yet um, <laughs> because everything I take to, to be fallible I mean that's my bottom line principle as it were um, and and there again I'm agreeing with Klein Um you know, all principles are fallible, agreeing with Peirce um, in the original uh, setting up of fallibilism. And um, I'm not impressed by arguments that, that would say that, you know, there's something absolute or universal about, about um, certain metaphysical principles. I don't know any alternatives, but, you know, there's even logic has alternative logic. So um, I, I think there's, if you look closely, there's, there are more alternatives than people know about. And secondly, um, you know, there's a long history of people claiming um, that they have a universal and absolute principle from Kant on uh, Kant and before and after, um, to only to turn out to be wrong. Science got them wrong they're wrong. We thought every event has a cause. Well, radioactive decay uh, seems to happen in a totally random way without any cause. Um, uh, we thought that uh, nature doesn't make jumps um, and quantum mechanics shows us that an electron gets from one shell to another with never being in between. Um, you know, and these are puzzling things to our intuitions, but that's what science. Keeps telling us over and over again.
1: Um, okay, so I mean, this kind of brings us to the the at the very end. You you focus on the issue of of mathematics in in science, which is you know, in, in a sense, that's kind of ground zero for this whole debate. Is you know, what do we do about mathematics in science? Uh, exactly. because, uh, you know, two plus two equals four and, and it seems irrelevant that we, uh, you know, not only can't we think of an alternative, but it just seems like there isn't one. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously with, with geometry, the parallel pasture, you know, we, we might've had those intuitions before, but we learned they're, they're wrong Um, But fallibilism across the board, uh, you know, a lot of people in philosophy of mathematics, which as you, you know, note in, you know, it got its impetus. It started from the whole problem of the, you know, the status of geometry and so forth. Um, So in the in that final chapter, you address the mathematics, the role of mathematics, the status of mathematics and science um specifically and uh you discuss the role of the indispensability arguments right math is indispensable in science and um and this is taken to be an argument for for platonism of some sort and that of course would imply that we have some sort of mathematical intuition to which we have access to these platonic objects and that whole picture to to you is is um Kind of anathema, I take it. Um,
0: Um, Well, okay. The main thing is that I, I, and the main point of that chapter is that, I mean, I've been talking about the role of mathematics in science throughout the book, and I knew that that was a crucial example, and, you know, people would probably be wondering, well, what about all the issues in philosophy of mathematics that come up? And what I try to argue in the last chapter is that my theory of Constitutive elements in science is neutral; um, that is, it's compatible with various positions in philosophy of mathematics. I don't want to be committed to one theory or another of um, of mathematics. In in my theory, I think that's the strongest position to be in. Um, for example, Quine uh, is committed. To an empiricist view of mathematics, um, because he takes everything to be, um, to get its uh, warrant, as it were, from uh, the totality of the empirical uh, sciences. Even the mathematics that's embedded in that is ultimately grounded on empirical practice. And, you know, that's worked out. I think in a very interesting and sophisticated way by Michael Resnick. I discuss his work in the book, um, but I don't. I don't want to be committed to something like that, and I don't want to be committed on the other hand to saying that there is a real a priori in mathematics, um, as many people want to believe, um, and um, I want to maintain. Well uh, neutrality on those issues, um, by saying just that, that you know, we have some sort of constitutive element um and mathematics is a prime example of that, but what the ultimate status is um doesn't matter in terms of it functioning as an a priori element. Mm-hmm. Um, it could function as an operariri element whether it's empirical or it's synthetic offerri um so i'm I'm really just trying to um, neutralize possible uh, trouble i could get into right <laughs> philosophy of mathematics right um, that chapter trying to distance myself from the the arguments now in terms of the indispensability argument i mean a, a lot of people have criticized that in various ways but the thing that that is uh is related to the whole project of the constitutive a priori is that part of the indispensability argument is this conformational holism, that is that theories get um, theories that are embedded get their grounding or warrant from the periphery, from the, the totality of the theory and um, that's what Quine thinks and that's why his name is associated with the indispensability argument But um, and that is a view that that um i do want to reject um that is i don't think um that's the right way of thinking about uh the epistemological warrant of of, of things i see them uh as hypothetical but not as getting their grounding from from their empirical use so um you know that that's um a way in which, and and you can separate the uh, just simply the indispensability argument in the sense that well you use these terms and you take them literally and therefore mathematical entities must exist Um, there's a further claim about uh, confirmational holism that that some people making the indispensability argument um, make use of.
1: Right. Okay. Um, so would it be, this is, we're running out of time, so just sort of a last quick question here on the on the book. Um, so would it be correct to say that, um, from your perspective, that, you know, discussions of the a priori in science have been, um, you know, a little bit off course because of the focus on mathematics and that you know really there are features of mathematics in particular that have been taken to be you know essential to or constitutive of the a priori and and those features are really just you know that's mathematics and we happen to we we happen to use those examples a lot and they play a historically important role but actually you know, we re- that was kind of a mistake.
0: Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, the the way I would put it is something like this: the focus has really been wrong in this discussion. Mm. Rather than focusing on a priori and what that means, and that's got a lot of intellectual baggage with it, um, I think we should focus on this the this role that the constitutive elements play in science. Um, and, you know, many of those things are going to, some of the prime examples of that are going to be mathematics and the role it plays in science. But it's not the only example. There are these other uh, presuppositions and, and even metaphysical kind of claims that are or groundings for um for science, and if we focus on on the practice of science and the role of the constitutive elements, I think we'll get a lot better analysis of what's going on in science than we will if we rehash debates about our knowledge or, you know, something like that. Um, okay. and, and that's the ultimate uh, aim. I am a philosopher of science and, and I see my project as, as part of uh, at least uh, uh, not in a detailed single case kind of way, but in a, in a broad sense, trying to set a framework for understanding science as a practice.
1: So let me we have time for just one brief question. Um what's what's next for you? I mean, are you going to continue on, along the same vein and maybe elaborate this constitutive element view or, or are you working on something totally different or
0: what? Well, I think I have to do some more work to to justify and explain the the fallibilism and why um how you can be um, non relativist and also non foundationalist at the same time. I've made that argument in the book and I've made it before in a separate article, but I think a lot of people are still confused about that. Mm-hmm. How you can be a thoroughgoing fallibilist with no absolutes at all, and then yet say there's objective knowledge. Um, So I think I I have work to do in that field. Um, Okay. Say I make a case, but it's a sketch um, rather than a a really full blown argument.
1: Right. Right. Well, uh, we are we are out of time, so. I just want to thank you for a very enlightening discussion. Um, it's been very, very interesting to know about, you know, how these different views relate to each other and then understand how, how your view kind of advances the, the conversation. So thank you.
0: Thank you very much for the opportunity.
1: Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've
0: been listening to an interview with
1: David J. Stump. His new book, Conceptual Change and the Philosophy of Science Alternative Interpretations of the A Priori, is just out from Routledge. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.